0: Good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here as we start a series on marriage. This series may look at things a little unconventionally, but while it may be unconventional, I guarantee you it's going to be biblical. As we start this morning, I want to introduce you to Lawrence Ripple. Lawrence Ripple walked into the bank of labor in Kansas City, Missouri, one block away from police headquarters, and handed a note to the teller that said, I have a gun, give me all your money. She gave him $2,900 and he went and he sat in a chair in the bank lobby and waited for the police to arrive. The police got there and asked him what he was doing. And he said this morning he had a fight with his wife. And so he told her that he was gonna go rob a bank and get caught because he had rather be in prison then live out his marriage with her. He got six months, a house arrest. <laughs> True story. You, you, talk a, you talk about a plan backfiring, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, there are a lot of folks who are living in a less than fulfilling marriage Their marriage is kind of like a three-ring circus. First you have the engagement ring, then you have the wedding ring, then you have the suffering, right? It's like the lady who said that she wanted uh, the ideal, and she quickly realized it was an ordeal, and so now she's looking for a new deal. But so often, so often marriage is looked at as something that is supposed to be glamorous and glorious, and it doesn't turn out that way. We soon learn that uh, those vows, they're hard to live out. And there are many people who are not divorced yet, but they're living in a less than fulfilling marriage. There are some folks who would make you nauseous if you're around them too long because they have a great marriage and uh, they look like they're something out of a 50s sitcom, but the truth of the matter is, while it is the brunt of many jokes, A lot of people are struggling in their marriage. I think that before we go any further, we need to get some things out of the way. Some bedrock principles that will guide us in this series. The first thing that I want to say is this. If you're single, stick with me, okay? I do not believe that you are less than because you're not married. Single Christians are not broken, they're not incomplete, they don't need repair, they are just that, they are single Christians who follow the master who was unmarried, who never had sex. So understand, the lot that you are at in life, the season that you are in in life is not inadequate, it is not less than someone who is married. I know sometimes a series like this can seem like pouring salt in a wound. Please, please stick with me. You know, Paul talked about marriage a lot, but he also talked about being single and how really in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, that was a more preferred state because married people tend to get distracted. So singleness is not a bad thing. It's not a less than thing. And I don't believe that you're a notch below the married couples because you're single. The second thing I would say along those same lines is that along the next few weeks, we're going to actually have a series or a lesson in this series dedicated to our single Christians. But until then and after then, stick with me and understand that this series does have something to say to you. I think it's easy to assume that a series on marriage really has no benefit for the single Christian. But Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. So all scripture is breathed out by God, all of it, and all of it is beneficial. So if you have ears, please tune in. And finally, I would say this. This series will be based on God's definition of marriage. There's a lot of definitions of marriage out there. Only one matters, okay? And that's the one that we are going to be working from, God's definition. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So the Hebrew writer says sex outside of marriage is sin. But then the question becomes, what is marriage? What defines a marriage? Well, God's pretty clear on that. Genesis chapter 2, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What is marriage defined by God? Very simply, it is one man, one woman, life our culture has a very loose definition of marriage god doesn't and so that's the premise we're going to be working off of the biblical definition of marriage so those are some bedrock principles are we good we got those down so now we're going to move forward this morning with this idea marriage is great but it's not supreme marriage was created by god he is the divine architect of the most sacred human relationship, which means that it goes best when we act out our marriage in the way that God designed it. We will have a fulfilling marriage or a better chance at a fulfilling marriage when we live it out the way God has prescribed, when we follow the divine architect's blueprints. Too many people enter into marriage without ever even considering what God has to say about the subject. The divorce rate is not high in our culture because people have lost a high view of marriage. It's because they've lost a high view of God and what He considers to be a marriage and how they are to function within a marriage. Because all too often, marriage becomes solely about finding happiness and fulfillment. Marriage becomes me scratching your back and you scratching mine as long as you love me I will love you but here's the deal while we want happiness and fulfillment in our marriage that's not of primary importance and that's not the goal of marriage the goal of marriage is to honor and glorify God it is my opinion that we have overreacted to a degree. Because the divorce rate is so high in our culture and even within the church, we have almost overemphasized marriage. And that sounds crazy. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't emphasize marriage. The Bible does. Scripture does. However, the Bible is not a book about marriage. It's a book about God. It's an autobiography. It's a story about God written by God. And so we have to start there. Like we talked about the last few weeks, we get the vertical relationship right and the horizontal falls into place. Marriage should be a means by which we can enhance our devotion to God, but all too often it's not. All too often, marriage becomes selfish and self-centered rather than Christ-centered and mission-focused. We get distracted by issues and problems. We get hung up on one another, whether good or bad, right? And we lose the goal that we are supposed to have in mind when it comes to marriage. We often look at marriage like the goal is to have a blissful life, to love on each other for for all of this life and into eternity. But this life is not just about being happy and blissful in a marriage. It's not just about having a good family. It's about having a God-built home that seeks first His kingdom and His righteousness. And a lot of this goes back to the way we read the Bible. We talked about this in our series that we did on Sunday nights recently called Adequate and Equipped, and we talk about reading the Bible devotionally. All too often, that's what we do, meaning that we take a verse, we pluck it out of context, and we apply it to our current circumstances or situations. It's the verses that you see on a coffee mug or on a bumper sticker or on a placard in your home. The inspirational verses, right? Like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans uh, that I have for you to prosper you, all those kind of things. And we apply that to, you know, um, our career, high school graduation. If you read Jeremiah chapter 29, in fact, if you read all of Jeremiah 29, you understand there's a bigger context there, right? And it's not about you. In fact, the heading above Jeremiah chapter 29 says, Message to Exiles. That's not you. Doesn't mean that we can't claim this verse. It just means that we've got to claim it within context. And within context, there is a hope and a future for us as well, but it doesn't pertain to what we typically think of when we read that message or when we read the Bible devotionally. And this devotional approach to Scripture is played out when it comes to our marriages or our weddings. Whether it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Ruth 1, 16 and 17, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, Ephesians 5, we pluck out those verses and we make them apply to our marriage, and certainly there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Understand, I think it's great that we emphasize God's word, and certainly when we apply it to marriage, but we have to understand that 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't have to do with a wedding, right? It has to do with spiritual gifts. Even Ephesians 5, as it talks about the relationship between husband and wife, it's relating To Christ and his church and so we have to consider scripture in context and we have to understand that the Bible is not a book about marriage it's a book about God certainly certainly it's good to look at marriage through a biblical lens and we should however marriage is a shadow of a more important relationship not only that you will notice as you read through the many scriptures that talk about marriage The end goal of all of it is never just having a happy life, right? That is not the purpose of marriage, and you don't find that in Scripture. It's not about being happy and satisfied with your spouse. That's a byproduct of the end goal, which is to serve God in your marriage and to glorify Him. I heard one preacher illustrate it like this, that many people look at marriage like a couple that's underwater, and there's only one scuba tank. And they're sharing the oxygen. They're passing it back and forth, not realizing they each have their own tank. They each have their own tank. They don't have to rob air from each other, they don't have to share air with one another because they each have their own tank. God provides their breath, God provides the oxygen. Their fullness is found in Him. He's their tank that makes their marriage stronger. The Lord is my shepherd, not my spouse therefore I shall not want, and therefore marriage is not ultimate. God is. The most important thing in a marriage is your relationship with God. The happiness and fulfillment I find in marriage is a byproduct of me putting God first. You know, as a father, I often told my daughters that there was, you know, I didn't really tell them this, but I thought this, that there was no one good enough for them right? And those of you who have daughters probably know what I'm talking about. You, you feel like there's no one that's ever going to be good enough for them, but then you, you think about it and you think, well, that's not true. There's certainly someone that is good enough for my daughters, and it's God, right? I, I do a lot of premarital and postmarital marital counseling, and, and one of the things that I tell people is marry someone who loves God more than you. Marry someone who loves God more than you. Secular marriage books don't teach that. The secular blogs out there on marriage, they don't teach that. No, what they teach is, find someone who completes you. Kind of like Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, right? You complete me. That's the romanticized concept of love and marriage that we have out there in our culture. Find someone who makes you happy. Someone who loves you as much as you love them and live happily ever after. And to that I would say yes. I wholeheartedly agree that you need to find someone who completes you, who loves you even more than you love them. But that person is not your spouse, it's God. Start with Him. Make Him the focal point of your life and your marriage and see how it works. Now, when we start with God, when we start with the vertical, the horizontal tends to fall into place. And I want you to understand something that Paul says. Clay read it a moment ago. It's an interesting piece of scripture found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there if you have your Bible. It's going to be on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 29, it reads like this. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. I want you to notice that first line. The time has been shortened. Because the time is short, you don't have time to weep too long. You don't have time to celebrate too long. You don't have time to invest everything into worldly possessions and pursuits. And you don't have time to gripe and complain with your spouse. There's a bigger picture. There's more at play here. You don't have time to focus only on yourself and your own personal happiness. Paul was anticipating the second coming of Jesus. That is the context of his words here, okay? And because he believed Jesus was coming back soon, then he says, you don't have time to be distracted by all these other things. Focus on what's most important. Focus on being Jesus so that when Jesus comes, he finds you being Jesus, right? That's why Paul talked about, in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, it would be better if you were single to just remain single. Because people who are married tend to focus on each other. They lose focus on God or they get distracted by other things. Paul's not against marriage. In fact, he talked about marriage quite often. But he just says, in light of eternity, in light of what is about to happen or what he presumed was going to happen, then we need to focus on God and that first and foremost. Notice verse 32 and following. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's it right there. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. That is the whole point of what Paul is saying here. Focus on what's most important. Don't lose sight of what matters most. He's not saying that marriage is bad. In fact, As we know, he speaks about marriage in detail, especially in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is speaking here of marriage as a relationship that could possibly distract us from what's most important. And I'm not going to play Paul this morning and tell our single Christians that they just need to remain single. I think the point that needs to be made is the most sacred earthly relationship should not override the most sacred eternal relationship. Marriage should be valued. It just shouldn't be overvalued. Paul's point was that there's something bigger to consider. Don't get things backwards. It's kind of like when a baseball team wins the World Series. After that last out, the team that wins gathers at center, uh, at at, at midfield, around the pitcher's mound, and they dive on top of each other, they wallow all over each other, and they celebrate as they dogpile. Why do they do that? Because they had great chemistry. Because in the dugout, they shared their innermost feelings before the game, and they just wanted to show their love to one another? No. You know why they're doing that? Because they won the championship. It's that simple. That's the reason. All the other stuff is a byproduct. The fact that they had great team chemistry, the fact that they loved one another, all of that is a byproduct. But the main goal, the main end, was to win a championship, and you need all those other things. To win a championship, right? You need talent and ability, but you need good team chemistry and and a love for one another. Those are the teams that typically do well. So don't get it backwards. Don't get it twisted. Eternity changes everything, folks. Doesn't it? Eternity changes everything. It changes how we live, how we function, how we think, or at least it should. Hell changes everything. The fact that there is a hell changes the way you live your life, doesn't it? At least it should. Eternity changes everything. So we filter life through the lens of eternity. And certainly that is the case when it comes to marriage. We filter marriage through the lens of eternity. On the day of judgment, God's not going to ask me and Libby, so were y'all happy in your marriage? No, the question of judgment is going to be more like, did you serve me in your marriage individually, right? And so we can't get this backwards We've got to understand what's most important and what we need to focus on first. It's like that top button living we've talked about for the last few weeks. Get that top button right, the rest of the buttons seem to fall into place. You get God right, you get everything right. Right? So that's where we start. We start with God, not with ourselves. Eternity changes everything. Because, believe it or not, you can have a happy marriage that's worthless. You believe that? You can be married 30, 40, 50 years and never really accomplish anything for the Lord. So it's not just about being together. It's not just about living under the same roof and being cordial to one another. When our marriage is a holy alliance predicated upon living for God first, we enjoy an even stronger union. No one loses when we love God first. In fact, everybody wins. Here's another reason why marriage is not ultimate, because it's not forever. And this kind of strikes at the heart of what we've been taught in our culture, right? This is my forever love. We're going to be married forever. Well, Jesus says that for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Jesus is addressing the Sadducees, which were a religious group that didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And as we know, Jesus certainly did, and he would prove it. And so the Sadducees try to come up with a scenario to back Jesus into a corner. In the old law, there was something called a leveret marriage. And a leveret marriage meant that if a man died childless... His brother was under obligation to marry the widow and have children for him, and those children would be regarded as belonging to the first man. Now, if the brother refused to marry the widow, then they must both go to the elders, and the woman must then loosen the man's shoe, spit in his face, and curse him. And the man was under a stigma of refusal. That sounds crazy. It sounds like I'm making it up, but you can look in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10 and you see this. The Sadducees were pointing to a case of leverant marriage in which seven brothers, each dying childless, one after another married the same woman. Like that's ever going to happen, right? But that's the scenario they concocted and pitched to Jesus. And Jesus then says, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? Jesus answers, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That statement strikes at the heart of all of us who are married, happily married for sure. You mean, he's not my forever love? You mean we're not going to be married forever? Now, I think we should focus a little bit on what Jesus didn't say. If heaven is astronomically better than here, then whatever my bond is going to be with my wife in heaven, I've got to believe is, is just going to be that much better, right? Jesus doesn't say you're not going to know your wife in heaven. He doesn't say you're not going to have a bond with, with your husband in heaven. Again, if my earthly bond is good, if it's great, then i got to believe that whatever the bond is in heaven, it's going to be that much better. So I don't think we need to think too hard about this and believe that this is some sort of shot at marriage. However, what I do think the point that needs to be taken is that because marriage doesn't seem to be eternal and because Paul says the time has been shortened, we have to understand this isn't all about me. This isn't even all about we. This is all about he. Marriage is a beautiful creation, the most sacred human relationship, but it's not God. And it shouldn't overshadow the most important relationship that we should all have My wife and I were put together for the purpose not to make each other happy, not for selfish pursuit or ambition, but for the purpose of glorifying God. We are a walking advertisement for Christianity. People should see Jesus in the way that we selflessly love one another and in the way that we work together to love others. I do, as I said, a lot of premarital counseling, and one of the things that I say in premarital counseling all the time is the best time to get a divorce is before you get married. And so we talk about some of the red flags that maybe appear. What are some things that you need to work on? What are some things that maybe concern you before you get married? And let's talk about those things. Very rarely, if ever, have I had to tell a couple, look, y'all don't need to get married. But it's still good to discuss those things. And it's still good that you get the divorce before, instead of getting into a marriage, thinking you're going to change the person and it doesn't work, Right. And so now you're ending up with a broken marriage, maybe even a broken family. And so we talk about those things on the front end. And one of the other things that I always say is those who do the best in marriage are those who need it the least. Meaning, the folks that find their fulfillment in God first are the ones that tend to do best in a marriage. The ones who need marriage the least are the ones who tend to do the best because they love God more. And when you love God most, you love others best, right? You find fulfillment ultimately in God and not each other. And that makes all the difference. You know, we all have a priority list, don't we? I mean, even if you don't write it down in list form, you all have a priority list in our minds. I do. When I was coaching, it was something like faith, family, football, You hear coaches say that. You have a priority list, I'm sure, even if it's not true, right? I mean, even though God probably doesn't always come first, that's what you want to believe. And so if you were to write it down, you would say God comes first. Then maybe your spouse, your children, your career. I think we need to change the list. We need to shorten it. I think the list should look like this. Number one, God. Number two, there is no number two. You don't need a number two. Get God right. Start there. Let all your other relationships be predicated upon and saturated by your relationship with God, your love for God. Let him have his rightful place and everyone else in your life wins. Now I understand, and some of you may already think this and may have jumped there in your minds, there is a difference in what is ideal and what is real. No matter how much we strive for greatness in our marriage by loving God first, sometimes it doesn't work. And We're actually going to have a lesson in this series on what happens when there's no more we. When the marriage bond is broken and how do we get past that? How do we live as a divorced individual? We're going to talk about that because it is a reality, right? You may strive to do everything correct in your marriage, but the other side doesn't. For whatever reason, it doesn't work out. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But we still strive for the ideal, right? It's like I told my son when he was playing sports. When you walk off that field, make it be that you couldn't have done anything more. If you lost, it wasn't because of you. You did everything possible, right? Same with us. We do everything possible to make sure that we are living life on God's terms, that we are following the blueprints of the divine architect, that we are making certain that we are looking at his spec sheet, and we are devising our life, and we are are shaping and molding our life around what he says. I mean, this is not an invention of man. God designed this. And so we follow the manufacturer's specifications to ensure that it works out properly. Before there was Jimmy Fallon or Jay Leno, there was Johnny Carson. Some of you remember Johnny Carson. You might remember his sidekick, Ed McMahon, saying, here's Johnny and introducing him. Johnny loved kids. He often had young kids on his program. And one, one night he had a, an eight-year-old boy don't remember exactly what the eight-year-old boy was on there for. He did something heroic. It's probably an important story that I should have remembered, but I don't. But he was on Johnny Carson, and Johnny Carson was interviewing this eight-year-old boy. And during the course of the interview, you could tell this little boy had a religious background. You could tell he was raised in a spiritual home. And so at one point, Johnny asked him, did you go to Sunday school this Sunday? He said, yes, I did. And Johnny said, well, what did you learn about in Sunday school? And the little eight-year-old boy said, we learned about Jesus changing water into wine. And the crowd kind of chuckled. Johnny kind of chuckled. And Johnny asked him, so what's the most important thing you learned from that lesson in Sunday school? And the boy thought for a moment, and he said, "Uh, I guess if you're going to have a wedding, invite Jesus. (laughs) And better yet, if you're going to have a marriage, invite Jesus, right? Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, may we invite you into our marriages if we haven't already. May we make you the focal point. God, may we seek to serve you. May we seek to glorify you in all that we do. And may we make you proud by the way that we treat our spouse. May we love you best so that we can love others. May we put you in first place, number one, top priority in our lives. And may that affect everything else in our lives. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the church. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Luke's going to lead us in a song. I want to invite you. Maybe you don't feel comfortable coming forward this morning. That's okay. You can come talk to me, one of the elders, one of the other ministers. If you're struggling, maybe in your marriage or in some other way. We certainly want to help you. Maybe you're ready to to study Scripture and find out what it means to be a New Testament Christian. We'd love to help you with that. Maybe you've been studying. Maybe you've been looking at that and you're ready to take the next step. We'd love to help you with that as well. Don't leave here today without being right with God. If we can help you in some way, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.